Welcome to the Inspiration Accelerator, hosted by Michael Sonberg, founder and CEO of Rebel Culture and Skyrocket Education. Each week, we'll talk to a different, inspiring person in the world of leadership, personal development, career, family, fitness, and beyond. Buckle up for the Inspiration Accelerator. All right, everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to a brand new episode of the Inspiration Accelerator. I am here tonight with an amazing human. I'm here with Bob Carter. I want to tell you a little bit about Bob, and then we're going to get to him. He's held uh, a bunch of different roles in both the um, corporate and nonprofit spaces. He's an, uh, an executive. He's been a CEO. Um, he is actually, interestingly, I just found this out, a former uh, Division I two-time national champion in lacrosse uh at johns hopkins which is uh super cool he's a dad he's a granddad he supports these days nonprofit organizations and raises funds for them in the in, in the philanthropic space he's also has 26 years sober and is going for 27 this july bob carter thank you so much welcome to the inspiration accelerator thanks for being here Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to, to be with you tonight. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Bob, we've got to start. Uh, I, I, I don't know why I want to start here, but I'm fascinated by this. Division I lacrosse, uh, lacrosse national champion, we're, we're offense, mid midfield, d- defense. Well, to tell us what you played and did you yeah. enjoy it? Did you, did you get knocked around or did you do most of the knocking around for folks? I did. Well, I was a... Uh, I was a midfielder and I, I was a, a face-off okay. in the center, center circle guy. And, uh, you know, yeah, you, you have to be able to deal it out and you have to take it along with that. And back in those days, they didn't have this. They have a circle now protecting the centers. So nobody can go in and blow you out. But I was in the day when they could go in and blow you out and really? uh, played against, uh, you know, Syracuse, Army, Navy, Virginia, a lot of big guys in Division One, and you know I wasn't tiny, but I was you know five ten, um, and they were putting they always put the monsters out there to face off the six four six seven guys who try to push you around. But I was pretty sturdy, so I got say my last year there I got eighty percent of my face off, so that was a good that was a good deal. Uh, well, I imagine so. If you, you know, it was a lot of fun. If you all won multiple national championships, I imagine, and you were the, and you were lead, running lead on the faceoffs, I imagine there was quite a bit of success there. But but talk yeah. to me about because I'm fascinated by the connection between sports and business, and you've had quite a bit of success in business, and we're going to get to that momentarily. But do you see uh, parallels between sports and business, and did you do you ever feel like? Being as successful as you were, it, uh, you know, at lacrosse helped you when it got when you got into the uh, world of business. There's no question that it did. You know that there are lots of books written about the lessons I learned on the field was all I needed to know. And yeah. uh, you know, the, the the field is a great place because, uh, and there are different fields that you play on. But I was always I played team sports um, from the time I was very young until I got out of college and. Uh, you know, the learning of uh, depending on other people, of holding your position, but yielding the position to others, uh, you know, teamwork, dependence on each other. And we really we played for each other. Um, 
we we loved our coach, but we really played for each other. Um, and we talked about that and everybody encouraged everybody else to be successful. And, you know, one of the huge learnings is nobody ever does it alone. Um, you know, we had 10, 10 guys on the field and another 20 on the bench who could have stepped in and did just fine. Mm. Uh, when you're playing it, when you're at that level, I mean, you don't have any bad players on your team. Uh, sometimes it was just back then it was a matter of age and experience and uh, right. occasionally size, but no. And, and in business, you know, I look around and the, my success was direct result of the teams I put together. Um, people who surrounded me with uh, things that, you know, I wasn't really good at. Um, I was just uh, mentoring somebody today, and, and I do that quite a bit in this business. And, and they were worried about taking a different job. And I said, just remember, my career has been reasonably successful, but I've never accepted a job I was fully qualified for. Right. And uh, I figured I was bright enough to figure it out. And then I said, I could always surround myself with people who contributed in other ways. Mm. And that's what the team is. You know, we had some people who were good at face-off. We had people who were good at scoring goals. Uh, I was good at getting the ball, wasn't the best at scoring. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had defensive players. We had great goalies who could stop the ball. But that was that was a big learning all throughout my uh, my sports career in high school and college you know learn learn to trust other people and uh and trust that they'll do their job if you do yours uh, so that's the way my companies well right now this company that i've I created when i was 65 and you know warning i'll be 78 in a couple of weeks um but you know it's success early birthday <laughs> it's a direct result though the people i put together you know, I happen to be sitting kind of at the center of it, but it's really these teams that I was able to put together, and they're they're the, they're the pathway to success. Putting together good teams. Bob, I'll never forget being on the hiring committee for a um, a K twelve school uh, a few years ago. I won't mention the city because it might give it away. Uh, and they had a choice between two people for a a pretty high up role one who was immensely qualified, who'd sat in that seat before um, and who was going to bring a wealth of experience and one who was brand new, significantly less qualified, a uh, good, good person, uh, you know, smart, but nowhere near the quality of the other person. And they chose the lesser qualified person and their rationale was... Um, in no, in no uncertain terms, the the person who knows more is going to put a lot of pressure on us to be at, at, at their level, and we are not up for that. And so we are going to pick the person who we can kind of tell them, here's how things go here. I, I remember being so incredibly disappointed, um, and not because the person they chose was a, a bad human, and as I said, just the opposite, but it was such a, um, I'm going to use this word intentionally, it was such a cowardly move to me that they they chose playing small, they chose that they chose ultimately uh, worse results for everybody involved because they were worried about how hiring somebody at that at the, at the higher level 
how it would reflect on them, the pressures it would put on them to be great. It was so disappointing. And of course it didn't work out. Um, have you seen, have you seen folks make decisions based on ego and insecurity oh, sure. in yeah. those ways? Yeah. yeah I, I've seen, uh, you know, senior management, I've seen CEOs make the terrible mistake of surrounding themselves with people that they could, uh, that they could push around and, yeah. and who were yes people, you know, yeah. the psychophants uh, of the world. And, uh, you know, if you're not if you're not willing to put together a challenging team, you'll never be challenged, nor will you be as successful as you might be. It's a comfort zone, uh, yeah. and and that that faculty or whoever that committee, whoever they were of senior management, they they had a comfort thing going on, and they didn't want to mess with that, which is um, not, has nothing to do with the mission of the school, right? So yeah. they they used the wrong criteria for the decision all the way around, in my view. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, it's in some ways, it's a metaphor for life too. As somebody, uh, I didn't coin this, but you know, somebody told me not that long ago, like, be nervous if you're no longer nervous when you're stepping into a new space or you're making a speech or you're doing an interview or whatever it is. And to your point about not ever having been fully qualified for a job you had, I that brings some nerves with it. But it does, it's, it does because you know, you, you do that and, uh, it's, you gotta have a little courage to do that. Yeah. Uh, some people say you're crazy. Um, but that anxiety, that's good anxiety in my view, because it brings on the urgency to do well and to make the right hires and to advance the program in a sense to prove that you could do it not only to yourself, but to everyone else. Um, yeah. so I think I don't mind, uh, and it just goes to sports too, you know. And, and uh, just a word about that: when we would uh, play at home at, at Homewood Field, kind of a famous thing for lacrosse, very very historical field. Okay. Uh, before the game, um, we would get very quiet. There was no noise. There was no anything. And silently, you had thirty young men walking around or lying down were sitting in front of their lockers with their heads in their hands, contemplating the game. Mm. Um, some of it was anxiety. The other thing was building confidence that we were prepared and understanding. We were the best prepared team. And that day, we were probably the best coached and prepared team in the country. Mm. We never felt like we would ever lose, just never walking out of that room. We erupted out of the locker room when they would fire a cannon off. and. Uh, we always did a lap halfway around the field just to, you know, we'd already warmed up, but we, we would uh, take that. I was so out of breath, Michael, during those laps because my anxieties were popping up. Right. And uh, right. I was so excited that, you know, you could feel your heart racing and they did the national anthem. You're standing out in the middle of the field. And I was thinking, maybe I didn't train hard enough. I'm out of breath already and I haven't started. Right. But it was the good adrenaline pumping yeah. everything to get you going. So when you accept one of those jobs and you've, uh, you're taking a chance on yourself, you get that adrenaline going. And the results of, of good adrenaline are not stress, they're execution. Uh, and that's, you know, another lesson that I picked up uh, uh, in the uh, on lacrosse field, a couple other fields too. 
um, but I had a, I had a very a very severe leg injury when I was a sophomore, and uh, it changed my game. That's one of the reasons why I became a a specialist with face-offs. Um, they didn't have the uh, they didn't have the technology to take care of knees then the way they do now, yeah. and so I was not I was an all-state lacrosse player in high school, and they didn't have all Americans, but our team was was ranked number one in unofficially in high school in the country. Um, I had to make an adjustment to not quite being physically the specimen I had been before. And uh, I almost quit the team, uh, but I had a, an, a very competitive and athletic family. My dad, my grandfather, my grandfather was a boxer and uh, you just didn't quit. So the beauty of that moment was I found this niche. I had I had really good upper body strength. I worked on that harder off season, and you know got my arms where they belong, my shoulders and everything, because it's a lot of upper body. And I ended up contributing to the championship teams in that way of getting possession after every goal, because um, cool. I couldn't do all the cutting that I used to do on the offense and all that sort of thing. Uh, with a with a leg that was taped every day from my thigh to my ankle, um, but that so you adjustment found a specialty. I did right? like, and there's a, there's a lesson here around, um, you know, being malleable. Uh, that you know, you think it's X, the universe says, "Hey, it's Y," yeah. and then you've got a you've got a pivot there, and there there. Are, there are parallels in, in business as well. And I'd, I'd love to, I want to talk about your business, but sure. really, I mean, you, you know, you were at the top of the, of the food chain as the CEO of a, of a monster company called Ketchum, which I'd love you to talk to us about, but you had a, you had a secret at this time that you were, uh, you were, you were drinking yourself a probably almost almost to death here right i mean yeah, it was it was touch and go for for a little bit it's interesting it, it, um when i look back on it i was i was perfectly set up for uh an alcoholic um i was a ceo of a, of a fairly large company i had a driver um didn't have to worry about duis um i had an unlimited expense account I had one of those uh, unlimited Amex cards. Uh, yeah. I traveled around the world and whatever. Nobody asked about my expense accounts. I didn't file any expense accounts for an entire year, one year. Um, you know, <laughs> was, and I was part, of, I, you know, I was a stockholder in the company. I was hurting myself by not doing the right things. But, you know, in addiction, you don't think about that much. Um, so I was I was really set up for that, and there were people around me, Michael, who who took care of me. Um, I had senior staff, and, and they knew what was what was going on. They, you don't hide uh, over a quart of vodka a day. I mean, that's that's what it was in the last year of my drinking, eight months to a year, and uh, they wanted me to stay in that role because they felt their jobs depended on me being in that role. Ironically, I was still selling enormous accounts for the company. Uh, I did a couple in blackout that after I after I sobered up, I didn't remember doing. Um, but I was I was uh, on adrenaline, still working and still showing up and still 
being reasonable. And I was completely dependent on alcohol at that time. And uh, every day, every day, wake up, start start the day with a drink. Is that the way it was? Start with a drink. I had had a big hedge in front of my house, and when I come home at night, I would bring from the sports bar that I would go to a styrofoam cup with uh, vodka in it. And I'd stick it in the hedge. So when I drove my car out by the hedge, I'd grab that and I'd go downtown. And that kept me from getting DTs when I first got to work. I have some speaking DTs engagements. For, fo- for folks who don't know, those are tremors that you uh, that 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 alcoholics get when they're when they're detoxing. Correct? Yeah, yeah, and it's one of the more dangerous uh, detoxes uh, because very often there are all kinds of uh, things that can go haywire, if you will, in your system when you're you, you become physically dependent on alcohol because your blood has uh, got so much in it. And when you take that away, your body reacts negatively at the outset yeah. and they have to give you other drugs so that you don't, uh, you know, have one of those uh, fits or whatever. I can't remember the name they call them, but uh, it, it can be dangerous. But anyhow, that was, you know, being, being the CEO of a company made it easier for me to continue that uh, down that track. Uh, until it didn't, and then uh, you know I got very sick one weekend, and ended up uh, you know on the floor, and ended up with a what we call a moment of clarity, uh, where this voice said to me, "You don't have to live this way anymore." You don't, and it kept repeating it as I was waking up. My wife was in California; I was in uh, Pittsburgh, I think, and. Uh, I called a friend that I had put in rehab some years before and asked him to please come and take me to rehab. Wow. I put in the EAP program for the whole company, the employee assistance program, uh, years before, and then I ended up being able to take advantage of it. I offered to resign my position with the company and the board of directors refused, uh, which was kind of amazing. They said they believed in me and they wanted me to get well. Uh, I spent a month away and uh, came back frightened, but I came back committed to a program of sobriety. Uh, was it? Will you uh, talk to me about the emotions that you felt at this time? Was it embarrassment? Was it? Were, did you just not care? You were so relieved that you were getting help and getting, you know, they say in in twelve step programs, uh, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and. Uh, I imagine that that was part of what you felt at that point. But did you feel like you let people down? Is it did, what crossed your mind? All of the above, Michael. I mean, I had had all. I had been sober for eight and a half years, uh, and then went back out for three years. And it was during those three years that my drinking accelerated to the point of of writing a suicide plan, and then uh, obviously not acting on it. Um, but I, I didn't think I could get sober again. Uh, and the guilt, the fear, the, uh, the feeling of letting everyone down, not least of all yourself, uh, and then saying, oh, maybe I should just end this all to be better, mm. uh, and which is a very dark place uh, to be in. But I, I, I've been there. I know what that, that place feels like. Um, so by the time I got into rehab and I came out, 
I I probably would have stayed in rehab another five months if they had let me do it because yeah. I was just afraid of the outside world at that point. Uh, but I ended up in a program with a good sponsor and I, I did 90 meetings in 90 days. And uh, I went to meetings around the world that uh, I didn't speak the language, but I went, to, I can, you can find AA meetings everywhere. And uh, I would go sit in the rooms because I knew the rest of the people were trying to be sober. So was I. Uh, so yeah, all those, all those emotions uh, come to the front. What, what alcohol is different than, you know, uh, I talked to you about this in my pre-interview. My drug of choice was cocaine. I was a bartender for a lot of years. Yeah. Um, not unlike yourself, I would, I suffered from terrible panic attacks. Um, I found out that alcohol made the panic attacks go away at least momentarily, Tempor yeah. uh, tempor temporarily, which was uh, a really uh, good thing to learn, but also maybe a terrible thing. And I'd find myself at the bar I bartended in New York where the bars stay open until 4 a.m. And even back then we'd stay open until, you know, it was the, the, the time, you know, in the nineties, things were a lot different. You could, I'd keep my bar open sometimes till 5, 36 a.m. Nobody, cops never came, nobody cared, but I'd find myself at, at midnight having, you know, started drinking that day at, at probably 1, 1 p.m. when I woke up, I, I couldn't see straight and uh, discovered that cocaine allowed me to straighten up and I could, I mean, I just, I found this drug that made me feel like Superman that it just, I was, I was absolutely unstoppable on it. And I would use Coke until I was so wired that I needed to drink again. And I would sometimes get drunk three or four times in one night. And then, you know, that would go on for, for sometimes days at a time. But I bring that story up because I wouldn't know where to find cocaine. Now, if you, if you, you know, if you paid me, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I wouldn't know who sells it. And by the way, with all this stuff with fentanyl and all these horrible things, even if I was interested, which I'm not, and I get that, I get that there's, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm so far past that addiction that it's not even a thought, but, but I, I, I wouldn't anyway, because I'd be so terrified of what would be in it. But alcohol is so a part of the culture, every yeah. sporting event, every, you walk, you, you drive down any street, in any city in this in this country and there are bars and people make it look fun and the commercials and peyton manning is endorsing this beer and like it does that make it that much harder when it's something that's so prevalent and so accepted yeah it's socially acceptable to to drink and uh you know if it was a, if it was against the law to drink it would have been harder uh, i probably still would have found my way uh to do it because you know i I have that personality. Yeah. Uh, I, I also have the, 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 I would say, characteristic of never doing things halfway. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm the same way. <laughs> you know, just, you know I, I was all in. I was all in with alcohol. Uh, my athletic career actually helped that because we, were, we played hard, real hard, on and off the field. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, you felt like you deserved it um, because of what you were doing. And... Uh, and, you know, Michael, you know this, it's, if it's a rainy day, it's a great day to drink in a bar. If it's a sunny day, you drink in the park. It's beautiful. Yeah. We're out on the water. If you're sad, you, you, you know, you bury your sorrows, drown your sorrows. If you're happy, you celebrate. I mean, there's no, there's no human condition that they haven't marketed. And I was part of marketing. I know this game that they didn't market that said, go buy alcohol. 
and you'll feel better. Miller Lite, whatever, you know, you name it. They're, they're all they're all doing it. So it's uh and so is there a play because I think one of the um, you know, I'll go to like an NFL game. I feel like there's this the you know, the dirty little secret of the the NFL and really all sports leagues is that folks are drinking an obscene amount of alcohol, are then getting behind the wheels of their cars. Um, I don't know what I've never seen any sort of data on crashes or fatal crashes after sporting events. And and I hope that I hope that my thesis is wrong here, but I feel like there's this dirty little secret where they're pumping people full of alcohol. Certainly people have the choice. And I, I get when it gets to become an addiction, it, it it no longer is a choice. But um like is I feel I just it feels negligent uh, in a lot of ways. And it's big business and people are getting really hurt as a result. Have you ever thought about this on the macro level as being like a an advocate for or somebody who opposes just yeah. you know alcohol companies or things like that? Has that yeah, ever been I, a thought for, for you? I, I don't actively do that, but I uh I'm not a fan. I'll just put it that way. And I you know, I, I talk to people about that. I talk to people in the industry about that, uh, about what they're doing and, you know, advertising marijuana now as well. And, you know, that's the introductory drug. And, you know, I, I, I became friends of uh, Christopher Kennedy Lawford. It was Peter Lawford's son, part of the Rat Pack, one of the yeah, children. Yeah, Peter Lawford, sure. He took, it, he took his first, uh, did his first marijuana with his father when he was 14. Wow. And I, he gave me a book, signed his book about that, because I won a, an award some years back called the Johnson Foundation Award for people who are in recovery for a good, pretty good time and did something with their lives. Um, and there are a lot of people who have. But anyhow, he uh, he was a real strong advocate, and I supported him against uh, this uh, legalizing marijuana, because it's, it's just a fact. I mean, it's an introductory drug in most families. Uh, wow. and uh, And here we are. You know, we're, we're marketing that in much the same way today. Uh, anyhow, I don't, I don't like that end of it. I, I boil it down to, you know, we have to make individual decisions. Uh, and I don't think advertising made me drink, but it may have made me think my drinking was normal. Mm. And that's even more insidious, I, I think, that it was... I'm I'm just like they are, uh, and they have those little um, those little blips on the end that say "Please drink responsibly." Well, you know, okay, <laughs> that's sort of a throwaway. Uh, after telling me the only way I can have a great time, you know, is to is to engage in alcohol. But you know what's interesting? There's a little bit of a backlash today. More and more places are in fact serving non-alcohol beer. Um, yeah. And I have a good friend that uh, uh, in a group that I go go talk to uh, periodic. It's not a an addiction group, but another kind of group. And uh, they serve non-alcohol wine only at the at the place because somebody in their family you know is, uh, is in the program and so on. So there's a you know there's some of that healthier living that sort of thing. So how do you feel about the non-alcoholic drinks? I'm, I have mixed feelings about those things. Years ago, oh. when I was trying to get off the off the cocaine for me alcohol was always the gateway to the cocaine i never often it, is, used yeah. it. it often it is so i started drinking like 
Odules or whatever the non-alcoholic beer was at the time. And I, it felt to me like um, harder than just abstinence. Why, why do a thing that kind of feels like the thing and tastes like the thing? Yeah. And I found it to be a much harder road to, to go down than simply abstaining entirely. What are your thoughts on these non-alcoholic well, drinks? Well, I, that are I so don't popular? know. I don't, I, I do, when I eat, I'll tell you when I have non-alcohol beer, steamed blue crabs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Baltimore and Maryland. Yeah, yeah. Chesapeake yeah. Bay crabs and that thing. I just, I'll have a, uh, you know, a Heineken Zero Zero there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't drink a lot of it because it makes me bloated anyhow, and I don't like the sure. way it makes me feel in that yeah. way. But, you know, there's no buzz, but, you know, washing Washing down that hot sauce with a nice cold one really feels good. That's cool. That's cool. Okay. And that's about all I do. I don't. I don't engage in the other fake stuff. But, uh, maybe maybe you sold me on on that with the uh, with the blue with the blue crabs. Yeah. What uh what what advice you? I mean, you're you're 26 years in here. I know that there are people listening to this show who are either struggling with addiction or people who've made a commitment recently. Some folks I know personally who've made a commitment recently to say like, I'm giving up X thing. What What do you say to folks? Uh, we've all heard the one day at a time, uh, you know, mantra, but what do you say to folks with 26, almost 27 years in yourself for people who were a week in or, or a year in? Yeah. That's gonna, that could well, be some advice they could they could glean. Yeah, any any abstinence is good from something that's doing harm. Yeah. Uh, and and I I'm you know if somebody can only stay away from it for six days a week or five days a week, stay away from it. Um, mm. You know we have binge alcoholics who only they get blasted on the weekend and that sort of thing. Do I recommend that? No. But if you have five days sober out of seven, it's better than seven than seven days drunk, which is what mm. I had. Uh, so I. I'm an encourager of people to, in their own on their own journey. Everybody's got a different journey here, uh, mm. and be conscious. You know, I, I believe in journaling. Uh, write down how you feel those five days, and then write down how you felt Monday morning after the weekend, and do that on a continuum and see how that feels. Or, mm. you know, what happens to you on the weekend when you when you have that binge as opposed to how you feel by Wednesday and Thursday without alcohol in your system. Any differences? Uh, you know, try to try to evaluate what works and what doesn't. Uh, and I think by the time somebody says, oh, I'm going to give it up for 40 days or I'm going to give it up for whatever, they're probably on the either on the edge of having a problem or actually have a problem. Mm. Normal people Normal people seem to be okay, you know, uh, who will have, you know, a couple of drinks a week um, at some celebratory thing or whatever, and they uh, and they put it down. You know, the people who would have one glass of wine with dinner, would, I couldn't figure that out. That wasn't me. Wasn't me. You know, I never did that. When uh, my wife, God bless her, was with me in my bad times, still with me 40 years, and uh, she... Uh, when I quit drinking, I remember we went out uh, to dinner and we were in a restaurant and she would always order a wine or something. She didn't order any wine. And uh, we had the conversation. 
And I said, you don't have to do that for me because this is my program. And she said, Bob, I never liked drinking, but I wanted to be with you. <laughs> so Excuse that's me. how she could stand me. Probably. Uh, and and I said, we well, used to order a martini now and then. She said, yeah, but you finished every one that I ordered. Ever. <laughs> yeah, a little lesson there. <laughs> that is a good lesson there. That is a good lesson. Yeah, I have a close friend of mine who was like, yeah, I haven't. This was uh, in December. Uh, we were doing this running program in December. And he said, like, I can't remember the last time I had a drink. He's like, I think it was like September. I think I had like a half a glass of wine in September. And I remember thinking like, what's the craziest thing I've ever heard? Yeah. Because the way I'm wired, it's, you know, it's, it's 12 beers. It's, you know, it's 12 beers and Jack Daniels and right. there's no, there's right. no moderation. Why would we? Yeah. Not... If, one, if one feels that good, how about six? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so there are people yeah. who just are wired, wired differently. So that that recovery thing, though, has, has made me able to do some extraordinary things in my in my business and in yeah, other parts of my life that I I would never have been present to do. Uh, so I'm grateful. You know, every day I'm grateful for the, that moment when I uh, made that decision. Yeah, well, tell us a little more. And we'll, we'll get you out of here on this, but tell us about what you're actually doing now and some of the work you're doing with nonprofits. Sure. And I imagine this is stuff that was born out of me. You said you started this company when you were 65, right? It was like, a, I believe it's like was like a, a retirement project or something like that, right? Retirement failure. I uh, I didn't make it as retirement. And yeah. uh, we had, uh, my wife and I had gone abroad for, for a good while, a couple, almost two months. And I uh, came back and she knew I was bored to death. And so I decided, I said, I, you know, I got to do something here. So I called uh, a couple of friends in New York and uh, just chit-chatted about what I was thinking about doing. And everybody said, go for it. And uh, so I put together a little bit of money, threw it in the bank account and started a company that would do consulting in the charitable area. Um, and because of my, uh, my other history, I had to, my name was associated with a brand that was already out there. So I started getting a lot of phone calls. I made it known in the in my circles that I was available. So the phone started ringing a bit. And I, I had already um, been involved as a, as a trustee or board member at a number of nonprofits. So I, I knew that network pretty well. And uh, things got really busy right away. I started with like two clients. And after the first year, I had like 10 and I was renting people from the old New York company from Ketchum to do some of the work. So I was sort of leasing people and uh, created this model, uh, horizontal model. When I was working with Omnicom you know, in New York, uh, which owned Ketchum, uh, I was on their acquisition committee. So I went around the country for a few years with a half a dozen other people and we evaluated companies for them to buy or not buy. Uh, so I got to see a lot of business models by doing that. And I saw this horizontal model that a, a company in Dallas had. And I thought, yeah, that's really cool. You don't need a whole lot of capital to get it started. Uh, our consultants are all 990s. You know, they're not employees. Um, we have a, a fixed number of people, you know, uh, 
seven or eight people who really run the company. We outsource everything. And one of the frustrations at the large company, which was a vertical company, not horizontal, because we had a lot of boxes making your way to the top, um, was I could never pay the best people who did the consulting enough money. Uh, occasionally you could, you could bonus out and do things like that, but I was paying for a lot of infrastructure that I, I felt was no longer needed in business today. Uh, so I, I created a different kind of company. Uh, it got busy and uh, I ended up calling somebody from Ketchum that I had mentored, who was a senior vice president. And I said, I'm offering you 20% of the company to jump ship and take this over. He's you know, 20 years younger than I was at the time. And uh, within four months, he was on, on board and we were growing at uh, over the years in the first 10 years, we grew at like 15 to 20% a year. Wow. Uh, and it's turned into a, uh, a brand in the industry. We're uh, a large to medium sized company in the field, which is a very small space actually, concentrating in nonprofit consulting. Uh, and because of my international work uh, over the years, we've ended up working in a total of 17 countries, uh, raising money in those countries uh, and sort of making connections with people all around the world. Uh, and what we do is we contract with a charity to uh, estimate how much money they can raise. If, and this is high-end fundraising. This isn't direct mail or any of those kinds of things or direct response. This is what we call transfer of wealth, major gift fundraising. Uh, the, the, the campaigns that we do range from 5 million to the largest uh, recent one is 1.5 billion. Uh, wow. And it's, you know, it's big projects mostly. We, I made an intentional decision to uh, not have a company that had to train fundraisers, but we uh, hired, uh, we had to have a minimum of 15 years experience before we would consider you. And we averaged uh, 21 years now in the industry with our staff. Um, so it's, the great thing about it, Michael, is we sleep really well. All of our clients are all over the world doing great things, whether it's in healthcare, education, um, humanitarian causes all over the globe. Um, there, are, there are 21 top humanitarian agencies around the world, and we're working currently with six of them, six of the 21, wow. which are the largest agencies uh, in that space. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, and I, I talk about this all the time, you know, if you chase money as your objective, it's a hollow chase. If you chase yeah. values, the money chases you. Mm. And uh, this company is successful because we're built on high integrity. And and our philosophy is to make the world a more benevolent place. Mm. That's why we get up in the morning. Um, and frankly, I don't worry about the money. I worry about what the work we do. Uh, people talk to me about pricing and I said, we price our business to do the work, not to get the work. Um, mm. And and so I've ended up being a fairly high-end company and we get invited to a lot of really big shows and big opportunities to do things. Uh, we're doing some work in Jordan now with one charity. We're about to do some work with another one to possibly build a, an aquarium on the Red Sea and uh, so cool. a marine park on the Red Sea. And, um, 
you know, it's it's lots of fun. National Geographic is a past client, and we uh, we enter into the life of an agency when they either have a great opportunity or they're in real trouble, and they need they need outside advice. So I don't know if that's a good description of what I do, but in that I still sell a few things. I, I get a lot of phone calls every week, uh, yeah. and. I answer my own phone. You know, I have an assistant. I live in Sarasota, Florida. She lives in Philly. Uh, you've met her, Erin. She runs my life on a schedule, yeah. which is really the way I can do that. The other side of my life is I'm, I'm a volunteer. Um, I'm, I helped create and I'm now uh, a founding member of the board of the, the WHO Foundation in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, we got a lot of press during COVID, of course, not all positive, but Sure. We raised a couple hundred million dollars uh, after we were created in the first uh, two and a half years. Um, I chaired the National Aquarium Board. I'm still on the board as chair emeritus in, in Baltimore and a couple other boards, International Association of Fundraising Professionals International, and did some lobbying for the nonprofit space while I was doing that. So I try to, it's funny, I, I uh, sometimes I'm in a boardroom and I don't know whether I'm on the board or I'm consulting. I just have to look around and, okay, which boardroom is this that I'm in today? Uh, and that's, uh, I mean, it's a perfect segue because it's not because you're doing what you were doing 27 years ago. It's because you've clear, you're clear of that and you're doing so much great impactful work that you're sometimes looking around and saying, which amazing space am I in right, right now? Um, what a, uh, what an incredible story, Bob, truly. And I, I can't thank you enough for sharing, uh, your story of triumph here, you know, blemishes and all, but then where you've, where you've come, come from and come to, and just for the, you know, I, the show's called the inspiration accelerator for a reason that there are people right now listening to this who are thinking I've got, I've got to change my life. and you know, Bob, Bob did it and other people have done it. And, um, I just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story, man. Truly. Thanks. Thanks so much. I've been blessed. And, you know, I figured God must've rejected me a couple of times because I should have died along the way, but I didn't. Yeah. And, uh, I think that uh, I'm here to do something. I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. So. Bob, I love it. Well, we want you to do it thanks. as long as you can. Um, how can folks, if folks want to look you up, how can they find you? LinkedIn or something like that? Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn is probably one of the easier ways. Uh, LinkedIn is Bob Carter, CFRE. That's Certified okay. Fundraising Executive, but CFRE is the, is the letters there. Uh, and we have a website called carter.global. Carter.global. Uh, yeah. Folks, ch check, check out Bob. Uh, reach out on LinkedIn. Just, uh, Bob, truly, you're an incredible human, man, and I, I'm so thankful you took an hour of your time to uh, to talk to our audience, man. I Thanks so much. It. I enjoyed it. Well, folks, um, for Bob and everybody at the Inspiration Accelerator, um, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we will see you next time. Cheers. Have a great night. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. Please look out for a new episode with a new guest every week. This was the Inspiration Accelerator with Michael Sonberg.